Hi everyone, it's Kino here. Thanks so much for joining me on Seek Up, the yoga inspiration show. I am so grateful for you and grateful to you for tuning in and sharing this journey with me. I am overwhelmed with how many people come up to me and say that they're really enjoying this type of communication, teaching, and sharing. So thank you so much for being a part of this journey of yoga, this journey of spirituality, this journey of mindfulness, this journey of seeking wisdom. More than anything else, this is meant to support the seeker's journey, meant to support you on the path. If you find this series of teaching really beneficial, the way that you can support this series is to become a member of the Om Stars yoga community and practice. We have decided to make this series free and available to everyone so that no matter where you are in the world, you can get the teachings that will hopefully provide sustenance for the seeker's journey. And for those of you that can become a member and give your support, please know that I appreciate it. And I'll see you on the mat real soon. The purpose of yoga is not stretching, in case we didn't realize that already. But the purpose of the spiritual path is really the essential teaching of what yoga is. There are many different avenues to that seed of spiritual awakening that people can sort of answer the call of. Some people answer that call through the yoga practice. Other people will answer that call through meditation practice. Other people may answer that call in their own unique way, whether that's finding a more intimate and personal relationship with God or prayer or many other practices that take you into a, a sort of spiritual path. Now, the teaching of yoga is, has some very specific ends within its teaching of spirituality. And perhaps the most important thing to understand about the yoga practice is that, particularly the practice of Ashtanga yoga, we are attempting to cultivate the power of clear sight. And what does that mean? Well, it's discrimination and the ability to decipher what is true from what is untrue, to make that distinction. Oh, this is reality, and this is non-reality. This is permanent, this is impermanent. Being able to see clearly, to um, kind of sort through the information and experiences that we have in order to see without any filters of judgment, without any filters of our past patterning, so that we can have an objective, neutral, and clear view of what reality is. Unfortunately, it's very difficult for the human being to see clearly. We are constantly impacted by our past, constantly impacted by our emotions, constantly impacted by factors that we are not even aware that we are impacted by. So the purpose of our yoga practice is at, at the very, very base level is to create the foundation of clear sight within the laboratory of our own personal practice, within the laboratory of our skin, our bodies, our emotions, our thoughts. So even if we maybe get influenced by our past patterning when we interact with the world around us, we have the experience, the short experience of doing our, our sadhana, our daily practice of yoga, including asanas, including breath work, including meditation, including chanting, if that's all part of your practice, then we have that time where we're devoted 
to creating this deep introspective focus that allows us to see clearly the nature of, first of all, ourselves. And then ultimately, we'll get better and better about translating that state of mind off of our yoga mats into other places in our lives. So in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, which is sort of the canonical text that we refer to consistently in the Ashtanga Yoga tradition, we have the idea of clear sight being defined as viveka kyati. And viveka is wisdom, and viveka kyati is the, the ability to discriminate or see and reveal that wisdom for itself. So this is similarly... Uh, like a light being shined out into the darkness. The light doesn't need to go fighting with the darkness, but by the mere fact of turning on the light, we can see what was once shrouded in the darkness. And this is an important thing to understand is that we're not at war with delusion. We're not fighting a battle against um, unclarity. All we're doing is trying to turn on the light within ourselves. And in that space of light, what is revealed will be more true. We can see more clearly but we don't need to create more dichotomies. We don't need to create more categorizations of this is good, this is bad, because we're trying to get away from those strict hard lines of dichotomy into a more inclusive um, and, and sort of broad way of understanding what truth is, what reality is, and, and to expand our perspective. So one of the most limiting factors that each of us has to contend with is the fact of our own context. We are born in a particular age, from a particular culture, into a particular family. We speak a particular language. We are born into, maybe, maybe not with or without, various cultural customs, including religion, including cultural norms, social norms, these sorts of things. We have a particular body. That body has a particular size, shape, age, and color. All of these things impact us and impact our ability to experience reality and to see clearly. And this is something that we can't escape. So our context is infinitely a factor in our ability to experience and see reality to the extent that our experience of reality may be radically different than someone else's experience of reality. And the purpose of Viveka Kyati is not to go around and try to police other people's ability to see clearly or not, but first and foremost, to try to just see that slice of reality that we inhabit as clearly as possible. The most common understanding of this level of context that's given is in an age-old parable of blind people holding on to various parts of the elephant. I'm sure by now almost everybody here is familiar with that one, where if you tie a blindfold on or you get a bunch of, um, you know, uh, people that cannot see and place them around an elephant and then ask them to describe what they see. Well, one will be holding the tail and you'll ask that one, what's, in, what's, what's this being like? Oh, it's long and thin. It's, lo it's so long and so thin like a rope. And then someone else will be holding, you know, the leg of the elephant. What's an elephant like? It's very thick and round and stomps and then someone will be holding the belly it's so huge like a whale another one will be holding the trunk and say it seems to be wet and sniffing you know and another one is holding the ear oh it's a floppy thing it's so floppy so weird this elephant and each of them if placed in a room to describe the truth of the elephant can easily be at war with one another by holding on to their contextual experience of reality, assuming that the extrapolation of that context necessarily creates a universal truth, which is untrue. 
So the first thing on the journey of Viveka Kyati is to understand my experience of reality is inherently limited by my context, by who I am, where I've been born, by my blindfolds, which are placed around me. And this is the first thing to understand is that on the path to knowledge, truth, and discrimination, the first thing that we have to discriminate is our, with or, or deal with, really, is our own limitations. If we don't understand that, we have no hope of seeing the truth. We can be surrounded in, we can be surrounded by a whole bunch of other people who've only hold the tail of the elephant and then get evidence and confirmation that the elephant is like the tail. And then you, it doesn't matter if you have 3,000 people that all say the elephant is like a tail, the tail, only the tail, a long, thin, rope-like thing. That is not the universal nature of truth. So on the, ver- on the road to yoga, we must understand first and foremost, I think context means our humility. You know, who are we? We are not omnipotent. We are not omniscient. We are blind people holding one slice of an eternal truth that's so big and grand, not one of us can see on that level. So in this journey of Viveka Kyati, it's very, very easy and tempting to go around and observe other people not seeing clearly. But we are tasked with seeing how we are not seeing clearly, how we are limited in our scope to be able to expand the scope of our minds to look over and say, well, what is, what is your slice of the elephant like? You know, Might that be true rather than that is absolutely not true. That is not how I experience it. So when we understand that the limitations of our cognition, our ability to know is what cognition is, our, our ability of even how we know, we know. When we understand those limitations, we understand so much more about how we can engage in cycles of suffering. So a, a key concept in our yoga practice is that Consciously, but more often unconsciously, we recreate patterns of suffering. Right? So what does that mean? This means that we go around and we try to convince the world that the elephant is like a long rope. And we think we're on a crusade to illuminate right, the ignorance of the world. Oh, world, you don't know the truth of the elephant. Let me show you. you know? Now we're equipped with the internet. So now we have more than 3,000 followers we can get. We can get millions of people behind our bandwagon, that the elephant is just a long rope, and, and, and think we're doing good in the world, even think we're doing something of benefit to the world, when in fact we're creating, in this case hopefully unconsciously, although it could be conscious, but that's another uh, scenario to walk down, um, and, and, and the idea is that we, we, we do things unconsciously, even we have an intent that seems to be good, but because of our own contextual limitations, our inability to shine that light of knowledge at ourselves, we create more suffering, more misery. We prevent other people from seeing a bigger truth by indoctrinating them in our limited truth. So we have to be very, very careful of how we're using the tool of yoga because something happens that as you keep practicing, you become more powerful. You become a stronger human being with the power to influence other people. The practice increases our sense of what we could call like the, 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 you know, like the inner, you know, my teacher called this the, the, you know, the, uh, the Amrit Bindu, the sort of pearls of our life essence. So as we practice, 
there's something about, there's a sort of vitality, a glow, you could say, about someone's been practicing for a while. And this is kind of why we get attracted to the practice. Oh, it looks something, you know, there's a whole business called glow because people glow after the practice, you know? Now it's not yoga glow anymore. Now the other glows are there too. But uh, at some moment it's like, oh, that glow, that after practice glow. And then the more you practice, the stronger that light becomes in you. So you become a stronger light. But with that comes more responsibility because if you use that power consciously or unconsciously, hopefully it's unconsciously, to perpetuate more delusion, more suffering, then we're taking people off the path. And instead of enriching the path for others, we become an obstacle, you know? So it's a great responsibility to accumulate the power of yoga. And another reason why in the yoga practice, we have to understand that okay, none of our teachers will be perfect. There will be times when they won't make the right, mis- the right decision, that we won't make the right path, and, th- and that we may unknowingly, consciously or unconsciously, with our best intentions, create suffering uh, for the students and for the community. And this has to be acknowledged, because unless your teacher is Jesus Christ, every other human being is going to have many flaws, right? They're going to be angry. And maybe, you know, unless your teacher is the Buddha himself, then, um, you know, your teacher is going to be a human being who's struggling with their own vivekakyati, struggling with their own discrimination, having a hard time coming to terms with their own context, We are so influenced by contexts in such a degree that we don't even realize. The obvious ones that we're now, especially in our contemporary age, aware of, our our age, our size, our shape, the color of our skin, our religion, our economic position in society, our social privileges, these things we're starting to get consciousness about, which is wonderful. We can see, oh, I'm this person with these privileges and these disadvantages, and this is how it influences my sight and experience of reality. And then someone else in a different slice of reality holding their slice of the elephant can share that point of view, and we're getting better about that. But there are so many cognitive deficits that the individual person experiences in a day that are beyond what we can even conceptualize. We have the ability in our mind to tune out things that we are not trained to see. So I don't know if you ever had, I'm sure you have had the experience of walking down the street and someone said, did you see that broken building? And you had walked the same path as your friend because you were walking together and you did not see that broken building right? you said, no, where was it? It was right there. We walked right by it. Or, you know, did you not see that dog that was hurt on the side of the street? No, I didn't even realize that. And your friend said, I almost stopped, but uh, yeah, we were in a rush. You didn't see it? No, I didn't see it. So we have the ability to just disregard vast swaths of reality. And then how does that impact our discrimination? Now we don't even see the elephant, It's there, and we describe it. Was there an elephant? Elephants don't exist. They're a hoax, right? Because we, through our cognitive deficit, have selectively edited that out of our experience, you know? Or we can wake up to some things that we repeat over and over again, only to have ourselves sort of real, oh, I didn't realize I was doing that. 
There's some, there's some um, very interesting work on uh, cognitive psychology from two uh, Israeli behavioral psychologists called Amos Tversky and Danny Kahneman. Most people have heard of Danny Kahneman, but maybe not um, Amos Tversky. But they, they're sort of one of the first individuals who really discovered vast swaths of cognitive deficits that people make by developing rules of thumb. And what we, what they found out is they, is that as human beings, it's difficult to cognize and interact with the world. So for example, when we're fed various pieces of information, we create rules of thumb, which they call the heuristics. And as we develop these rules of thumbs, these heuristics, these kind of ways that we categorize and, and easily cognize our reality, we unfortunately make vast errors of judgment that even the most brilliant individuals who are clued in to the fact that these cognitive deficits are there still make. I'll give you, I'll see if I can give you, um, uh, I'm going to give you a funny example. Uh, and so they're, there's, and they're, you know, they're behavioral psychologists. So they brought a lot of people in and made funny experiments with them, uh, primarily students at universities who had to be subjected to various silly experiments in exchange for, you know, like a cookie or something. Um, <laughs> so they brought all these, these poor students in and then they had them do something that seemed very, very random. They put them in front of a roulette wheel with numbers from zero to, uh, zero to hundred or like wheel of fortune kind of thing. They had them spin the wheel. Totally random. Then they asked them a question. How many African nations are um, uh, represented at the United Nations? Completely unrelated. The individuals who spun the wheel and got closer to higher numbers, closer to 100, when asked the question, how many nations of Africa are represented at the United Nations, answered a high number. Those individuals who spun the wheel and it, it registered at a lower number gave the answer of a lower number. It was entirely related to how they spun the wheel. And we're talking about students who are history majors, geography majors, and other individuals who should have this information, but because of this heuristic that they call the availability heuristic, that information that you interact with very, very closely with the, 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 the information that you're cognizing about influences what you think is true. And we're not even aware of this on a day-to-day -day basis. So if we think about this, it's actually overwhelming. You know, how many times do you answer a question? What is true? What is untrue? What did you just interact with right before? There was a seemingly random piece of information that may or may not have influenced the heuristic by which you're going to cognize about a certain set of reality. It's absolutely overwhelming when we think about it. How much of this meaningless interaction that we have influences our ability to see reality clearly. If we circle all the way back to the practice of yoga, it's almost like Patanjali and the, 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 the students of yoga from thousands of years ago recognize that we have these cognitive deficits, we don't see reality clearly, and we have to do something in order to hone that lens through which we can peer into ourselves if we have any hope of being able to peer out into the external world and do good interactions with others. So we have the practice of yoga and we have this very, very important tool to clean the lens off, passed on to us um, from and through generations of dedicated practitioners in India. I have the great and good fortune for having the privilege of going to India and practicing with Patabi Joyce and Sharat Joyce when I was doing Ashtanga yoga for less than a year. And I have the great good fortune to be so steeped in the lineage. 
And for me, that's been a big part of my practice. One of the benefits of practicing in a lineage is that you're not on your own trying to figure out where to shine that light, where is the cognitive deficit, why can't I see clearly? Part of the benefit of stepping into the lineage is that you stand on the shoulders of thousands of generations of spiritual practitioners who have run into the same obstacles that you face on the path. And you benefit from them shining a little bit of light on those areas of darkness within yourself. As they have discovered, they have shared, as they have realized something about themselves, they have taught And we are the recipients of that great generosity that teaching really is. So we started off this talk with the Sahana Vavatu chant, which is normally the chant to essentially bless the teacher-student relationship from both directions. May everything that happens be of benefit for the teacher and the student equally, recognizing from the humility of the teacher that the teacher is not perfect and that the act of teaching benefits the spiritual liberation of the teacher. And the student realizes, oh, without the teacher, I have less light shine on the path than I'm lost on this great journey into the darkness. So let me be very thankful for this relationship that I have, for the knowledge that comes. And let nothing come between us. Let us never fight. Let us never fight. Let us never quarrel with one another. And this is something that our contemporary yoga world has a hard time with because teachers and students, teachers and students end up being in a community, sometimes end up being competitors. And for me, I I would never, if my teacher was teaching, I would absolutely jump at the opportunity to be a student. And I would hate more than anything else if for some reason there were more students in a class of mine at the same time that a teacher of mine was teaching. This would be a great shame, honestly. I, I have a couple of times, a couple of times actually canceled classes because I thought, I don't even want to risk a situation like this. And, and I want to go be a student. Let me go be a student every chance I get. So the competitive mindset that sometimes enters um, our yoga space, creating this sort of zero-sum economy where there are, you know, 50 students and we only have those 50 students. So if I start teaching, I need to take the students from my teacher. We end up destroying the lineage because then it no longer begins to be about teaching, respect, thankfulness. It ends up being about competition and jealousy. Great that the teacher would celebrate the student's success and great that the student would honor the, the, the teacher's commitment and what they've what they've really gotten from that, from that perspective. This is something in the Western world, we have a hard time. We don't have this sacred bond between um, the teacher-student relationship. We also have, we, we somehow have lost that sacred bond of respecting our elders in society. You know, sometimes we treat our elders as, uh, you know, kind of like, you know, crazy old grandpa in the corner. We don't need to pay attention to what they have to say. And that's unfortunate because in the yoga tradition, uh, wisdom accumulates. The light gets brighter the more years we spend on the planet. Our asana may not increase. That's okay. But the light that shines, that viveka khyati, that increases, it increases, it increases. So When we come into the practice of yoga, what I'd like each of you to leave with, the thinking, a sort of reflection on is, what is my contribution going to be? You know, how am I going to continue the lineage? Do I just show up and practice? And that's okay, because we need vital members of a community who are students who are carrying their practice into 
um, what you could say, you know, um, a real job, right? So I had a student recently when I was teaching him at this past week, I was teaching him something new. And then he looked up at me and he said, you know, I have a day job. <laughs> like, I'm not going to be able to do this anymore. I have to go to work after this. It's just, this isn't, you know, and I said, okay, well, just today. <laughs> so, and it's true. So we need people who, who, who their main contribution is going to be the enthusiastic student. You're going to show up and you're going to just love being a student and then you'll support others in that journey. So not everybody's contribution is, oh, I'm going to be a yoga teacher. I'm going to be an enthusiastic yoga student and I'm going to go be this light in whatever is your day job, wherever, whatever sphere you operate in, you know, and you're going to bring a little bit of that yoga wisdom, that yoga light into that space. Other people will support the yoga community in other ways. You know, I, I've, I've often thought, um, if anybody's ever been to um, China, which has been a while ago since now, you cannot go without a long um, quarantine period. But when I went to China for the first time, everybody was on this app called WeChat, which on, on one level is very scary because the, the government can see everything that you do. But on another level, I thought, what if there was a yoga space where everything, everyone was a yoga practitioner. So like, if you have a carpenter, you have a yogi carpenter. If you, ha if you need a builder, you have a yogi builder. If you could go to the dentist, then they're also like a yogi dentist. So it's like a yoga chat world where you know that everybody in that space is united by the practice of yoga. And some are students, sure, but others like maybe you want a yoga banker and maybe you want like a yoga lawyer who would stop you from going to court. And maybe, you know what I mean? If you want a yoga mechanic to work on your car, and then they have to do satya so you know that you trust them and then so like I thought about that like whoa wouldn't that be like interesting but uh, the community we find our community like that and in that way there's a very important contribution to say the yoga community I mean there's no app like this that exists and you know I think would require a lot of money to build something like that so it's probably why it doesn't exist yet um, so when we think about um, our contribution was our contribution? Is our contribution to give back in some way to the community, but not necessarily teach? Is our contribution to become a teacher one day, to assist our teacher, to become a teacher, to share the knowledge in some way? So to think about that, what, what is what is my role and how am I contributing? And 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 how am I staying true to that sort of sanctity of you know the, the teacher-student relationship, respecting the thousands of generations who come before, so that you can think about this context that you're in, the great privilege that you have to receive this practice, and what are you doing to make sure that that nectar of yoga, that drop of the essence of yoga, stays true for future generations. You know, and it can be just practicing. I just practice. I want to practice every day for the rest of my life. It's what I want to do. Or maybe it's one day I might consider, you know, possibly teaching. Maybe I want to create, you know, like a yoga carpentry business, you know, and build yoga things. Right? So there could be all sorts of things that, that, that kind of um, spawn off from how we're going to contribute to holding the space of the community. But more than anything else to realize that the lineage is not a competition. It's not a line that we're trying to arrive first at some mythological finish line. It's not points on a line, but it's more like branches on a tree growing into a forest that create an ecosystem that evolves as a community over time, where no one tree is more important than another. And there's not a competition for this spot or that spot or this spot. And there's not a space where 
you know, we're against one another, but there's a space where it's possible that we're all in our own interesting and unique and vital contribution creating the health of what can support the ecosystem. That's the ideal that we strive for. Are we there? Absolutely not, you know? But we continue to practice, continue to work that avenue of Viveka Kyati. And um, yeah, that's pretty much what I wanted to say for today. <laughs> and I think uh, we, have, we always have a little bit of time for some questions. So maybe Tati, you want to read one of the questions in the chat? And then if anybody here has some questions, you can think about them and become brave enough to raise your hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so today in the practice, we did the alternate nostril breathing. Um, and this is something that Chatterjee is doing now in most of the guided primary series classes. And if you have time, it's very balancing to do the alternate nostril breathing. You, I personally, um, I've asked him, can we do it after Uplutihi instead? And I like, I somehow feel more peaceful after Uplutihi and then lie down. But he's doing it all the time before Uplutihi. So the, and the way that I learned pranayama practice was always finish your practice after Uplutihi, then do pranayama. So whatever pranayama you're doing at the end of the practice can be very, very, very beneficial. However, the alternate nostril breathing is also something you can do first thing in the morning, last thing in the night. Or if you find yourself having anxiety, you know, you can't sleep, I will have anxiety one night, don't know what to do, get up, do the alternate nostril breathing. Six rounds, one side, then switch six rounds, the other side, then lie down. And if it didn't help, do it again. You can do up to three times with a little bit of a pause in between. Um, but if you have time, it's very good to incorporate some of the traditional pranayama techniques at the end of your asana practice. It's also very good to incorporate some meditation at the end of your asana practice so that you can start to build more connection into the subtle, um, you know, the subtle, the subtle limbs of the practice. Uh, so what about Well, the first thing uh, that I, I genuinely believe can help us reinstill this respect for our elders in society is to identify who are our elders, you know, who, who really are the elders of the community. And, you know, some people might say, oh, well, it just means that they're old and they've been practicing for a while. Well, yeah, you got to respect that because what are you going to be when you're old and practicing? Are you going to be practicing when you're old? Or are you going to have quit because you're like, I don't really like the way my practice looks anymore. It can't press up into handstand anymore. So I'm going to quit and lie here, you know, and be grumpy. Right? No, respect the person who's 96 years old and still, you know, doing headstand. Respect them. Even if they're from a totally different style, a totally different lineage. So identify who are the elders in the Ashtanga community. Sometimes I, I get a little sad when I think about, gosh, we're losing the elders. Like we're losing the senior teachers, you know, like I think about at some moment, Tim Miller was coming here to Miami and was, was um, uh, practicing or sharing the practice with our community. And, um, you know, like for the last couple of years, Tim's teaching has just been gone. And um, that's really sad. And then you think about, you know, like Richard Freeman and Mary Taylor, they're older, you know, and BKS Iyengar has passed away and Patabi Joyce is gone. So you think like, these people are gone, you know, who's left? And what can we do to honor those who are left and give them space? 
and elevate them. And, and, and part of what we have to do to think about that is to get rid of this, this sort of ageism, this age bias of, you know, oh, well, because it's not that what they're sharing isn't like, you know, fast and fun and, and, and kind of, you know, a glorious kind of flow, then we don't want to pay attention. We think about these few voices that have been practicing for a long time. David Swenson was recently here and he is a wonderful inspiration of a long-term practitioner. And if you, and as a human being also, so we can think about gosh, there's, there's not so many of these individuals left who are still teaching. There are some individuals left who maybe have taken a turn away from teaching, but there'll be a time when they're gone. And then what are we doing to honor their contribution today? What are we doing to honor their contribution today? If you have people in your community that have been practicing for a long time and for whatever reason, maybe dropped out of the community, maybe don't feel welcomed, make space for people who are older in the community. Make space for people and honor those people. Invite them to practice. Reach out to them if you haven't seen them in a while. Just communicate that they matter. One of the things that that, that happens, especially if, um, you know, People, uh, when they may have a relationship to the practice, and then suddenly they feel, for whatever reason, not welcome in the community or scared to share their practice because they're getting older and they have to modify. We have to create a space in our communities that kind of normalizes the natural aging process so that people feel welcomed when they're practicing, not just when they're, you know, young, fit, and able, but also when they're, you know, 80, 90, this kind of thing. We should be equally excited for the older and senior members of our community to come in and practice. Then the the last thing I can recommend is how we can honor our elders is to think about each time we come to the practice, even if it's only internal, to make a stock of, you know, how did I come here? Who was my teacher? At the end of practice, um, when the reason I like to do the Guru Stotram is because there was a tradition in Mysore practicing with Patabi Joyce that at the end of the practice, uh, you do your practice and you would do pranam. And so you would say, thank you. Thank you, Guruji. And you would put your hands on his feet and say, thank you. And so there's this element of thank you. And he would never say, oh, you're welcome. He would also say, thank you. They both say thank you. And I found that very inspiring. He would often beat you to it. You would, you would open your mouth to say thank you. And he would be like, thank you very much. And you were like, thank you very much too. Okay, now we just thank each other and then move on. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there was this element of pranam, of, of, of every day saying thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the practice. Because the teacher was there, I was able to practice. In my practice, my own practice today, I still... Even though I don't see him anymore, he's not on the planet, and I don't see Sharaji, but I say, thank you. I'm thinking about these individuals who devoted their life to the practice, you know, and that each practice is a way I'm honoring them, to keep that humble recognition in my mind. And whenever I practice in a class with someone, no matter who that person is, I just try to make a mental, like some kind of uh, a mental note of, wow, this is, I'm so grateful to be a student in this class, whatever class it is. And then to say thank you to that teacher. Thank you, you know. And even if it's just like a thanks, that's also fine. You know, and it's make a big production. You know, and you're like, thank you. <laughs> you know, just like, thanks, fine. You know, just a little acknowledgement of like, had a practice, now I'm leaving, bye, you know. And uh, sometimes we remember being sort of at the door waiting for Patavi Joyce to like have that thank you moment with him because he was really busy to be like backbending people, like backbending, yelling someone over here, more backbending, try to put somebody's leg behind their head and you're like trying to just be like, 
that, oh, oh, not now. Okay, I'll just sit here. And I learned so much from sitting watching him teach because that actually just waiting to do pranam, then you're like, look around, like, what's he doing? Oh, look, he's doing that. Why is he, why didn't he assist that person? He's assisting that person. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, look, he yelled at that person. I thought they looked really good, actually. Like, he's yelling at them. He's yelled, like, he's telling that one that they need to lift up more. They need to lift up higher than I do. And I didn't get yelled at today. And then, you know, you can, the mind can go in all these different spirals. And then, you know, then he'll walk over and then, then he'll, then, you know, beat you to it and say, thank you very much. And by that time, you didn't notice because you got it, you know, in your mind was everywhere. So I like to do the Guru Shtotram at the end of the practice because it brings me back to that moment of Pranam. It brings me back to that moment where I feel a connection with my teacher, even though he's not here on the planet anymore, to feel like, oh, there is this opportunity. See, we have these small windows of opportunity that we may get to spend time with various teachers. Those windows close for whatever reason. Sometimes people, they stop teaching. I have a friend of mine, he's an amazing practitioner, good teacher, but he doesn't teach. You know, he just doesn't, he, he, would, he taught a little bit and says, not for me, you know, and he doesn't teach. He's an amazing practitioner, doesn't teach. I know some other people stop teaching for whatever reason. They say, I'm too old. I don't want to teach anymore. Uh, I don't understand this Instagram thing. So I don't have any students. So I quit. I'm going to just retire to Hawaii. There's a lot of like retired Ashtangis in Hawaii that <laughs> don't understand how to use Instagram. Um, so, you know what I mean? seems to be the graveyard. <laughs> you know? right? We go there slowly, make our way to the volcano. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, if we think about it, like, then it's gone. You know, I'm, there are some opportunities I missed. I, I practice Vipassana meditation, and I missed the opportunity to practice with Goenkaji. I missed the opportunity to meet him. Um, and he was the sort of lineage holder of that tradition. I missed it. I was gone. I met many other Tibetan, Tibetan teachers and Buddhist teachers, but I never had the opportunity to meet him and to practice with him. And I regret that. Um, you know, so, so if you're thinking about how can I honor my elders, first of all, in your own practice, second of all, identify with your, identify the elders um, that you can still take practice with. And then number three, in your community, make space for the elderly people, people who are older, and, and communicate that you value and honor them by reaching out to them if they're not there anymore and thinking about what can I do to create the space for them. And potentially, if they're a teacher, giving them space to teach, you know, letting them do their thing can be very important. Some more in the chat? Okay. <laughs> Any? Uh, how can we feel when and how can we balance it out when we become too attached to the breath? Wait, say that again. How can we tell when? Oh, how can you how can you tell when you become attached to the practice and how can you balance it out? Right. Well, I think that this is a constant struggle. I think we're constantly attached to the practice. The fact that you're here means you got attached to the practice. You know, you didn't you weren't so not attached to the practice that you were like, oh, it doesn't matter. Let me lie in the bed today. You were all attached enough to get yourselves here. That's good. Right? If you were so non-attached that you said, you know, let me just do like Uber Eats delivery of waffles and then uh, no more practice, then, then, you know, so some attachment to the practice is useful. So we're trying in the beginning to change our habit pattern by, by not just creating no habit pattern, but by getting a new, stronger habit pattern that will take the place of an older habit pattern. So whatever the old Saturday ritual used to be before you did yoga, now we make a new Saturday ritual. Then it just automatically, the body starts going to the shala Saturday morning. If you didn't do it, you would be like, this is weird. What else am I going to do? 
I don't know, clean the closet? I'm not sure. Something about waffles, right? And, um, right, so, so on some level, some healthy attachment to the practice is useful because otherwise you wouldn't come back to the mat. But you'll know, the, you'll know you're getting too attached to asana if you kind of create too many hard edges around your asana practice. So if you try too hard, which means that if you create these pass or fail moments in your asana practice that impact your emotional um, sort of outlook on life after the practice. So you're like, oh, I did headstand. Yay. I didn't do headstand. Oh, I'm crap. And then so if that's impacting, if you're assigning your self-worth with your achievement in asana, now we're getting too attached to the form of asana, right? So that's what we want to temper a little bit and think like, oh, I'm doing my practice not to achieve asana, but I'm doing my practice to cultivate yogic qualities of mind and being. I'm trying to create more awareness, more clear sight. I'm trying to be more kind, more compassionate, because the moment we see clearly the natural, the natural next step is compassion. So we have wisdom and compassion. We have awareness and equanimity that constantly get developed along the path. And if that's not happening because we're too attached to that we got the leg behind the head or we didn't get the leg behind the head, then um, we need to soften those edges just a little bit. So this is kind of what we work on, softening the edges. And, and it's difficult for the ego to accept that, uh, well, I once did this, but now I can't. You know, Can I leave the practice and still work on wisdom and compassion? Probably more so than ever before if we can really kind of you know, practice non-attachment to the form, you know? It's not an easy lesson, but it's one of the lessons that uh, is very vital to uh, the journey, especially of anybody that wants to become a yoga teacher. Um, because if we're unable to kind of address those experiences within ourselves, then when the students come and go through that, we won't be able to sort of be with them in that same kind of process that comes for everyone. You know, sooner or later, something happens, whether it's um, an experience in our practice that creates, uh, you know, a new limitation, whether we get an injury or something like that, or whether it's an experience in life that creates a limitation. Um, a lot of students come up to me and say, oh, I hurt my, like you have hurt foot, you know, I hurt my foot or I hurt my shoulder, or I hurt this. And uh, I would say more than 50% of the time, it's not happening in yoga. More than 50% of the time, oh, what happened? Oh, I fell up the stairs. Oh, I was riding my bike and then I fell off the bike. And then, oh, I was doing this and then this happened. And then it's all these things that didn't happen. Or, you know, some, I have a lot of people come up to me and say, you know, I was doing really well in my practice and then... I decided to start doing CrossFit. Yeah. I'm not like, I've done like, I think I've been to like one CrossFit class in my life. It's not for me. Um, but uh, it, seemed, it looked like a lot of people were having fun. So again, don't let anything destroy your life. You enjoy something, you go and do it. Um, but a lot of this was, oh, I, now I cannot put my leg behind my head because I started doing intensive spinning or kickboxing or something. And then they look like, oh, I'm like, look, did you enjoy your spinning class? Yes. Well, good. So practice non-attachment to your leg behind the head. But if you are so attached to the leg behind the head, is that attachment greater than the spinning? Because then you have to let go of the spinning or the kickboxing or the whatever it is that's preventing you from getting the leg behind the head. You know, um, I didn't like the CrossFit experience because I'm a little, like after so many years of yoga, I'm kind of very, um, 
uh, almost like meditative about my movement. And I remember I, they like immediately they were like, you look strong, pick up the 10 kilo weight. And I was like, I don't want to pick up anything that's 10 kilos. <laughs> like, absolutely, that's like, that's like, a, that's beyond the carry on limit of Europe. I, I am not, it's like, no. So I'm not, it's not for me. And I went, I picked up the one kilo thing and they were like, do more. And I was like, listen, I don't even know what we're doing. So I'm going to stick with one kilo until we figure out what we're doing. And then, and then they're like, yeah, swing it up and down. And I was like, okay, so are we externally rotating the shoulders when we elevate? Are we going to keep the tailbone under? They're like, don't think, just yank it up. And I was like, I think this is not for me. I need to create my technique over here. So it was just like, I'm just going to be over here figuring out what the technique of yanking this thing up in the air is. I'll, I'll come back when I have some solid understanding. You know? <laughs> and afterwards, my friend who took me was like, I think this is not for you. And I was like, I think this is also not for me. <laughs> I can maybe lift the weight, but with a lot of like, okay, we're going to feel the rotator cuff and it's going to kind of lift. And yeah. <laughs> Like I said, you do something, you enjoy it, then, then um, you know, uh, keep doing it. I love going for walks. Like, I really like walking around. And sometimes when I walk around a lot, then, then my hamstrings feel tight the next day. And I'm like, oh, why am I tight? I'm not going to cry about being tight. I'm like, oh, I walked around. Uh, particularly when Tim and I are in Europe, we walk everywhere. It's such a nice um, way to interact with the city, to be able to walk around. If I go visit New York, when I lived in New York, I walked everywhere. But then you come, you know. You come onto your mat and your first forward bend is like, evidence of walking, <laughs> non-attachment. Let me let my body open up instead of, you know, being, oh, where did my forward bend go? Oh. Right? So it's all about softening the hard edges. Anybody here have a question that would like to ask a question? Sure. Two questions. good um, experience that you're having. And I should repeat for people at home that might not have uh, been able to hear your question. So um, the question is that in meditation, there are uh, in moments of clarity, kind of some insightful thoughts that come in. Um, and then the question is, do I look for those or do I let them go? And first of all, uh, what we understand is that the types of thoughts that we think before we do the spiritual practice have a very different quality and tinge than the type of thoughts that we think after doing the spiritual practice or in the midst of the spiritual practice. So evidence that we're doing the practice correctly is just like what you described. When our thoughts lead us towards more compassion, more kindness for others. So like, oh, I want to say sorry for that. Oh, I have regret about this. I should have acted better there. Oh, 
here's some course of action I think I should take, this kind of thing. When our thoughts are more kind, more loving, more peaceful, uh, and they become almost like epiphanies that come in, these are, this is kind of like a thumbs up from the universe, you know, saying you're going the right direction. This is evidence, empirical evidence that you've stilled the waters of the mind. See, we don't necessarily need to go and get happiness and go and get insight, but if we can just stop thinking all the stuff that's in the way of us stepping into the flow of kind of what is, then those natural moments will start to come more and more. But if you get attached to them, then we'll take ourselves back out of the experience. And then we'll think that we only have a good meditation when we get those insights, which is also not the case. Sometimes our best meditation is when we sit and suffer for an hour. And that sounds really miserable, but you learn so much about yourself in that moment and you develop so much strength and determination when everything is miserable and everything hurts and you feel like you're failing and it's a disaster, but you stay through it. You develop so much spiritual fortitude in that moment. And that needs to be a good meditation as well as the blissful one where there's no pain and these wonderful epiphany moments come in. So we have to understand that those are great. They're like thumbs up. It's like a, it's like a sort of, you know, it's a good, it's what's called a boon or a gift, a moment of grace along the path. You know, we could even call it a siddhi, uh, but it's, we shouldn't get attached to them and we shouldn't look for them because if we make the practice about that, then we also miss the bigger picture. You know, we miss the bigger picture of sort of the, what we're trying to find about liberation. Right. Um, the other thing that is, uh, important to uh, make the distinction on is meditation and contemplation. Right? So in the Western usage of the word meditation, sometimes people will say, go meditate on that for a little bit. And that's actually not meditation as in the spiritual teaching of the East, right? So like the Buddhist teaching of meditation, then the yoga tradition, meditation is the thought, they try to end the thoughts. So you will meditate on something. You know, meditate on it, which means like I need to be present with it and not think about it. So that means I cannot meditate on it. That means go meditate, go try to sit, which uh, doesn't work. So contemplation, a contemplative practice, is another place where, for example, we take a sutra or we take a piece of scripture and then we contemplate that in a deep and introspective state. And this is yet another form of spiritual investigation that we can engage upon. So that could be something that you could, you could do consciously. You could say, I'm going to take five minutes of just pure meditation. I don't try, I'm not trying to contemplate anything. I'm not asking for any thoughts. I'm just going to do pure meditation technique. Now I'm done with that. Now I want to contemplate this situation in my life, right? Or I'm going to contemplate this scripture. You know, I want to contemplate this sutra. And I'm just going to repeat that you repeat it a couple times and let it sort of percolate around. And as a practice, that's another form of spiritual inquiry. Um, but we have, I think it's important to make the distinction between a meditative practice and a contemplative practice um, because they have different, they have different aims. Mm -hmm. That was a question. You said you had two. So no, so, so again, I'll repeat for everyone at home. She says she feels deeper in the forward fold when you look at your knees or when, yeah, rather than look at the toes. So, and then the question is, should I let go of the drishti and then work on the flexibility and come back to the drishti? First of all, the drishti is an interstate. So if you're gazing at a single point, and your mind is concentrated, you're doing the practice of drishti. 
Does it have to be the toes for forward bend, for forward fold? Absolutely not. It could be the nose. It could be the knees. It could be a, any single point that will help you concentrate your mind. As long as the mind is quiet internally and you're doing that work, any drishti is acceptable. Even closing the eyes for a little bit is acceptable. The moment your mind is no longer concentrated, that's the time to, especially if your eyes are closed, open your eyes, or to change the drishti or to change something about how you're practicing. It sounds like you're practicing in a very um, conscious and aware way, so I would absolutely say it's fine for you to look at your knees, no problem. Mm-hmm. Super. Good. Anyone on one more? Sure. Okay. How do you go about balancing your body and your side of the body? I So, yeah, when we're, this is a really common question. Um, you know, do we, what do we do about balancing both sides? Uh, and the, 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 most, the most basic understanding is that we're not looking for symmetry in the body. We're not practicing to make our body symmetrical. So the idea is that you do the practice to the best of your ability on both sides. What that means is that you're going to be rooted in the journey of sensation, and you're feeling what's happening inside the hip and not demanding that both sides perform at the same level with the idea that whichever side may be the one side, like you said, is getting tighter, that's going on its journey. And you need to be with that through its journey. Then the other side is getting more open. You're going to be with that on its journey. And then uh, outside of the practice, if you notice that there are some things that are happening like increasing tightness or injury is coming a lot on one side, it can be useful to expand the scope of practice uh, the scope of investigation beyond practice, and then seek the help of physical therapists, of, of, of someone that can really tune in to kind of postural patterns and address maybe there's something in your life that you're doing outside of your yoga practice that's negatively impacting the, the sort of health and balance and homeostasis of the body. So that's not been addressed. Sometimes things happen, like we store emotions in the body, we store all kinds of things in the body. So we don't want to force one side to express less. So for example, if you have like an uh, injury on the right side and then you, your knee goes to here and you have to support it, but the left side goes down, you just do the left side, how, how you can do it, while constantly feeling the sensations in the body. And you don't need to do the right side longer, but the injured side or the tighter side, you may need to take a little more time to get in. So you're going to be doing it longer. It's going to take you time to get into that. And then after you took that extra, all those extra breaths to kind of coax that side into doing what it can do, your five breath starts. You're going to take more time to get out of it because it's like, I need to slowly get out of it. So you will have taken more breaths on that side, but we're taking the same amount of time of breaths in the asana while giving ourselves the space we need to get into the asana. And the idea is over time, maybe we get more balanced in the body, but the idea is that, you know, uh, we should get more balance in our experience of the body, for sure. Maybe it evens out, but maybe it doesn't, and that's okay. If we, you know, if we go in search of symmetry, then we can end up. I grew up in a dance background from LA. Yeah. Yes, and and why? 
absolutely. And this is a really good point. So we say that, you know, and, 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 and a dance background. So what is, what is the goal of that symmetry in dance? Beauty. Yeah, wonderful. What a wonderful goal, right? Aesthetics, beauty, where, you know, and eventually we get judged on form and this kind of thing. The yoga practice, what's our goal? Exactly. So because the spirit, it's a physical practice with spiritual intention. So because of that, it doesn't matter what happens. So it, we may end up being more symmetrical or we may not, but our, our, that spiritual balance, there's beauty in that, which is transcendent of the physical. Yeah? Okay. Here. Okay. Well, whenever there's confusion about practice, whether it's meditation practice, asana practice, or any other practice, the traditional teaching would be would say find a teacher. You know, if you're on your own, there'll always be confusion like that. Should I do a little like this or should I do that? Should I do this? So, you know, this is like you can easily translate that into the asana practice. So many people who are, you know, like self-taught yogis, they'd start off their asana practice like, what should I do today? Should I do this or should I do that? Like, what's fun? You know, and it's like, okay. I, I'm really like I'm impressed that you can think of that. You know, I I much prefer in, to follow a little bit of a, a system, a path, this kind of thing. And I I understand because I I was kind of like self-taught before I found Ashtanga, and for meditation I was kind of self-taught meditating until I found Vipassana. So I was trying different styles of this and that, and doing a little of this and that, and then I found the Vipassana uh, lineage, and then. For me, the experience of doing the 10-day retreat was deep enough so that I felt like this is definitely the path for me, you know? Yeah. So, so, just, so I would recommend just do what you're doing, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, as much as, you know, what works for you, continue to explore that. And then after you do the 10-day course, make another evaluation, you know, after those, because you'll, you will accumulate 100 hours of sitting in those 10 days. She's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, so the more time you spend in it, they say like 100, 100 hours is kind of like the minimum amount of time to get fully, like get established in something. 1,000 hours, we're like kind of trucking along. 10,000 hours is mastery, you know. This is just a sort of statistically significant measurement in any discipline. And we think about 10,000 hours of asana, we can start to think about, oh, I could do that. You know what I mean? And you're like, yeah. You do like handstand for like an hour, like leg behind the head. And you do like immersion. You're like, yeah, you can like 10,000 hours, you could think about asana. 10,000 hours of meditation, we start to think like, oh, <laughs> so I'm going to sit there. <laughs> And then I sit there, and then like a thousand hours later, I'm going to be there in the same position. 
it's not all, you know, obviously it's not all in one thing, but, but you know, like asana is dramatically more entertaining. But uh, I really recommend everyone who's been practicing asanas for more than five years to start developing some kind of a sitting practice. So everybody who did the one-week course, we did the sitting practice together, and I asked you to maintain the sitting during the, the course. If you feel inspired, continue uh, when you leave and take that home. And, um, you know, if you feel really, really inspired, then look into the 10 day, uh, Vipassana retreats. Uh, they're entirely donation based and they're centers all over the world. You, they will not accept your money until you complete the course. And then when you complete the course, you do not pay for yourself, but they say, if you feel you've benefited, then give so that the next student can take benefit which is a really wonderful way of thinking about it. Every single time I've done the course from the time I, my first course that I did, I had very little money left. I spent like six months in India and then um, some time in Nepal and I just didn't have very much money left. Uh, and there were, you know, I did the course in Nepal and there were no ATM machines and I think the country at the time, it was a long time ago. And um, and then I had like this cash, and I was like, I'm gonna give this to the Vipassana Center. And when I finished, I was like, I'm so sorry, this is all I have. I'm so sorry, this is, I, I need at least like 20 bucks to get home. I am, uh, I gave them all my money. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so Nepal is uh, affordable. Yeah, okay, this is good, I can get home. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. Very useful. Okay. Uh, we're a little bit over time. So if there's one last question from anybody here that didn't get a chance to ask, one more question. Last one. Yeah. But today, uh, since they saw that everyone was going ahead, I, I tried. Uh, yeah. Is that correct? Good question. So in the lead class versus a Mysore practice in primary series, if you practice with me, I'm fine for you to just try as long as you feel good. If you feel overwhelmed, don't try. If you feel like, oh, my God, I look like someone putting their leg behind the head. Oh. So if you have fear and you don't like it, don't try it. But if you feel, oh, I don't want to sit here, I want to do something, then try it. Have fun. Um, in the Mysore practice, because you're going to get physically adjusted in the asana every day, sometimes there's a different standard that you work with because it's going to be very demanding on the body um, uh, in, a, in a very particular way. So we need to build up uh, the consistency of the Mysore practice. But if you can take a guided class with me, I can't speak for everyone. I'm very happy. If you feel good and you want to try, to so try. Okay. Other people, you have to ask them, you know? Everybody is a little different, but I think just try. As long as you feel good. If you don't feel good, don't try. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. 
So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.